This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. Tesla is facing a crucible. Sounds pretty serious. Here to explain our Eric Newcomer, startup reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. And just playing off that song, too, uh, Eric, we know some people are driving Teslas. Some are waiting to drive the Model 3, waiting for right. it to come off waiting, the production waiting, line. Waiting, yeah. Yeah. Um, tell me about your story. Crucible can be pretty serious here. Yeah, just trying to sort of pull a couple things going on. Uh, at once with Tesla, and you're alluding to one of them, which is just they need to start making enough cars that they can generate substantial revenue, and it's sort of getting that sort of uh, strong growth curve, and it's still questionable whether they're going to be able to hit sort of uh, expectations that they continue to push back. You know that mm-hmm. there was one point I think they were supposed to be producing 5,000 cars. A week by now, and they're uh, around you know 900 cars a week at the moment. Well, it's interesting too, and and just to kind of layer on top of this, Ross Gerber was with us of Gerber Kawasaki. He's out uh, on the West Coast, uh, Santa Monica, and he is invested about 10 million shares of Tesla, owns it, waiting for his Model 3. And he's been like Bloomberg, right, trying to figure out what really is um, the production scan- production ramp or schedule, if you will. And, you know, So he's looking at things that, he says Santa Monica is kind of like ground zero yeah. uh, when it comes to Tesla, because I guess there's a, a main delivery center in Marina del Rey. So they've been noticing more Model 3s on the road and looking at different things. So he's pretty upbeat, but mind you, he's a big investor in Tesla, too. Right. Um, you're concerned, though, about the executives leaving. Right. So, yeah, I think there's been a lot of attention on the production ramp, which is certainly key because, you know, the Model 3 is supposed to be the breakout sort of mainstream stream consumer car. But at the same time, there has been so much executive turnover, especially, you know, on the finance team. We've seen treasurers, controllers, you know, the CFO left last year only to have the old CFO Return and then uh, uh, John McNeil, you know, one of their top executives, a president at the company, left to be the chief operating officer of Tesla. I mean, sorry, of Lyft. Mm-hmm. Left Tesla to go to Lyft. So, right, you know, there's, you know, it's just puzzling when so many executives uh, leave one after another. Uh, sort of a lot of them on the finance team, while uh, the company has, you know, 23 percent of the float is held by short sellers. So it's mm. it's just one of those flags that short sellers love to point to um, executive turnover because it raises questions of what they know that you know the markets don't. Right. And one noted short seller who we've certainly talked to here at Bloomberg is Jim Chanos, right? And he, you say in your story, he thinks uh, Tesla shares are worthless. Right. You know, he said that, uh, I think, at the end of the year, you know, and I sort of reminisce in my newsletter that back in October, he, you know, in 2016, he said the whole thing is just sort of this melange of publicly traded and privately traded science projects gone awry. So we'll see how it works out. And obviously, he's still waiting. So that's always the thing with criticizing or questioning how everything's going to work out at Tesla. Somehow, you know, Elon Musk makes it work. 
Well, you know, and just a reminder, in 2017, Tesla shares were up 46%. Right, just, exactly, just right. <laughs> right, so at the end of the year, he's like, well, it's not going to work. It's, <laughs> it's, been a, then... <laughs> it's been a hard, short position to hold. Right. You know, I guess part of our problem with Tesla, Eric, is that how do we look at this company? Is it still kind of a startup in many ways? You know, and it's certainly producing things and it's getting things out to the market. It's got a bunch of customers already, but it's still kind of early in on the game in terms of its main product, these these electric cars. Right. I mean, it's definitely being valued on sort of the hope that it will produce these cars. It's not sort of a it's not predictable yet at this point. So I, I agree with what you're saying that it's sort of being valued on sort of future businesses. Um, you know, it's been a time where the markets have given companies a lot of slack. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there have been low interest rates, so people are looking for growth companies. And so, you know, everything from, you know, the company I cover every day, Uber, or if, even if you think about Netflix, you know, there are these companies that have been given super wide latitude to spend aggressively and i think you know tesla sort of is case study number 1 so we just have to see how they monetize it you are constantly talking to people about tesla and you live in silicon valley in the tech world and i'm sure tesla comes up in many conversations inside the office and outside of the bloomberg offices you know if you had to say people are more positive bullish on elon musk and tesla or bearish <laughs> Mystified. Uh, I mean, Peter Thiel was. <laughs> that wasn't speaking, a choice. <laughs> I know. I'll give you an answer, but I mean, Peter Thiel was speaking literally yesterday, and you know, he quipped, "You know, never bet against Elon." I think in Silicon Valley, you know, where people aren't short sellers, they tend to give the optimistic case. Uh, they would still be positive just because. It's Elon Musk, and somehow he, you know, has always delivered, and the market gives. I mean, I think people are just the market is so hard to understand around Tesla that people are reluctant to to bet against it because people give it more and more slack. There's so much enthusiasm, so mm. it's one of these things where I think most people would say, you know, if the market turned against it, it would be very hard, you know, but but they're not going to bet against irrational exuberance. But you do right, Eric. The financial markets have given Tesla a long leash, but the evidence against the viability of its business continues to mount. Yeah. So right. I mean, yeah. executive turnover, failing to meet uh, production targets. I, yeah. I, I feel we like how can... Other company. What, right. What, uh, what else can you say besides those two things? I mean, you need sort of elite talent. Uh, Elon Musk himself is already obviously sort of one foot in several companies. Uh you know, uh, SpaceX, boring. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so so we'll see. Okay, stay tuned. I mean, it's a $54 billion market cap company, and we're talking about uh, almost $12 billion in revenue uh, for 2017. <laughs> right. Well, we shall see. Eric Newcomer, yep. thank you, thank you. Have a great weekend. Eric Newcomer, he is our startup reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us in our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. Check out all of his great stuff. Just go to Twitter at Eric Newcomer. Also go to Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Radio. Ah, 
Yeah, better catch it soon because it might be going away. It's the Jamie and Lloyd show. We're talking about Jamie Dimon and Lloyd Blankfein. Imagine a Wall Street without them because it will happen one day. This story, part of the cover story coverage this week for Bloomberg Business Week, which takes a look at the changes in leadership on Wall Street and other big financial firms. Hussan is finance reporter at Bloomberg News. Uh, joining us in our New York studio, you wrote about this, right? Um, I love this story. Really smart. Thank you for um, big news this week, right? Uh, basically, it looks like Goldman Sachs putting into place who will come next after Lloyd Blankfein. Lloyd Blankfein and Jamie Dimon, they've been the stalwarts, I feel like, of yeah. Wall Street for the last decade, and certainly just before the crisis yeah. and coming out of it. Yeah, and even longer than a decade. So they started within six months of each other and back in 2006. So it's been 12 years in which these two guys, and then, you know, I took a little bit of license, and I imagine that they, you know, I reimagined them as characters in sort of a buddy comedy, right? You know, one's like, you know, the super uh, aggressive, you know, alpha guy from, you know, from uh, Queens, and the other is a wisecracking, you know, shorter, you know, guy from, from Brooklyn. But um, Sharing a one-bedroom in, like, <laughs> I don't know, on the Lower East Side kind yeah, of thing. Exactly. Get Marty Scorsese to direct it, you know, it'll be great. Um, I... I you know, you can't overstate how how large these guys loomed in finance the past twelve years, and um, you know certainly as you know as we've learned earlier this week, uh, Goldman Sachs is preparing for the future. They're preparing, uh, so they they've picked their heir apparent, uh, a guy named uh, David Solomon, who's rose up through the investment bank to take them into their next act. And with J.P. Morgan, obviously a bigger bank and a bank that you at home probably have interactions with, they have relationships with half of America. Mm-hmm. Um, they have another five years or so. So you're going to get, um, you know, it's going, Jamie Dimon's having his own spinoff where he's only by himself and he's going to be the main star. Well, you know, and it's interesting too, because you talk about the similarities between these individuals. They're two New Yorkers. Talk a little bit about that though. And they've had yeah. personal and professional similarities. Many, many. And they're real New Yorkers, right? Who still sound like they're from New York. They got you know? that accent. Yeah. Uh, and particularly Jamie. <laughs> and so, um, you know, despite being billionaires. So look, they both joined the billionaire club, which is unusual for um, for people who aren't founding businesses. Um, you know, they both um, grew up in, in, in the outer boroughs. Um, and, you know, they joined around the same time. And they both you know, had can- disclosed they had cancer around the same time, very curable forms of cat cancer in the 14, 2015 timeframe that they've subsequently, you know, knock on wood, have beaten. Um, so many parallels between their, their lives. And, um, you know, my understanding is, look, they're friends, they're friendly, and they compete, obviously, but they um, have a warmth towards each other. So you say this, and what's interesting, too, is this is part of a bigger, broader trend, right, that we're seeing among big financial firms where people, and I know some of the other coverage on Bloomberg Business Week, Jason Kelly talks about the guy being set up to take over Blackstone yeah. from Steve Schwartzman, who isn't stepping down, but uh, KKR and some other firms Carl are putting Osher. into place, right, uh, kind of the next generation of leaders. And and so that's interesting. And, and so I think taking in, taking in, in totality, um, you have these guys who... Uh, for one reason or another, survive to this point. Right, mm-hmm. first you have to get this point, and That's and they striking. did. They did that because they they navigated the financial crisis well, or they were, they chose the business model well, right? Uh, and they and they've done well, but they're getting old. They're in their sixties or seventies in some cases, and um, shareholders don't like to see, um, you know, sixty five year old CEO with no bench in sight because you know continuity, right? Nobody, you know, time yeah. is undefeated, right? Right, especially for a financial firm, for any firm, but I think in terms of continuity, they really want to see it in a financial firm. I asked you this question when you and I talked about this um, for Bloomberg Business Week, which will air on the weekend, but I want to ask you again. 
You write that Jamie Dimon is in a class apart from the rest. How come? Is it just because yeah. bigger firm or what? So Jamie Dimon, um, yes. They're, they're, let's go on the superficial. Start off the superficial, get to the substantive. Superficial, stock is up 200%, 215% in the past decade. Um, Goldman Sachs up, you know, 70, 80%. Um, um, you know, Jamie Dimon, I, I think to the substantive, um, it, it, you know, is controlling a bank which has so much scale and so many businesses, is so tech forward um, th that others are scared of them, right? You know, people start to quake when, when you hear JP Morgan's going to get into your line of business, kind of like the Amazon effect, right? Mm. So um, they're still in in their prime. Now, Goldman Sachs has to pivot. They're pivoting to, to um, you know, Products including uh, home, I mean loans, and in the future mortgages, um, deposits, obviously with Marcus, and uh, um, you know, and a few other retail products, sounding a little more like J.P. Morgan. So you know, I can argue that you know uh, J.P. Morgan is in in is set the template, and Goldman Sachs is in some ways copying it. Well, it's a great story, and really, you know, we'll see. As I said to you earlier in the week, kind of an end of an era, and we get ready for the for the new era. Although Lloyd's not going anywhere yet. Jamie's not going anywhere yet, but yeah, um, but you know, it's it, it's the, the the show's in its final year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Husan, thank you so much. Great story. Husan is finance reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us in our New York studio. It's the day for the wearing of the green. It's a great day for the Irish. So definitely timely in light of St. Patrick's Day coming up tomorrow. We thought we'd get a check on what's going on in Ireland. Martin Shanahan is back with us, Chief Executive Officer at IDA Ireland. This is basically uh, the government agency over in Ireland that's responsible for bringing in foreign direct investment. He's normally based in uh, Dublin, but he's in our Bloomberg 1130 studio here in New York. Welcome back. Great to be back. Thank you for having me. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Thank you. Happy Almost. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> How much time are you on the road? Uh, I spend about two weeks of every four abroad. So that could be in the US or that could be in Asia or somewhere else in Europe. Where are you spending most of your time abroad? Uh, I've spent a lot in the US in the last um, 12 months, um, but, but it varies and it depends on what's going on in the world at any particular time. Well, tell me about the direct foreign direct investment flows into Ireland. Um, historically, where have you seen the most flows? Where has it been coming as of late? Yeah, so um, historically uh, from the US, 70% um, uh, of direct investment 70. Into our, 70 comes uh, 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 from the US uh, into Ireland, 20% mm -hmm. from Europe, and 10% from what we would term growth markets, which are mainly Asia PAC. Um, we are seeing the investments from Asia PAC increase, but investment from the US remains strong. And the, the last three years have been uh, three of the best years that we've had in terms of direct investment in. And that's across all sectors. It's across technology, pharma, m medical technologies, uh, international financial services. You guys have a low corporate tax rate. We have a competitive, uh, consistent and transparent uh, corporate tax rate. And uh, I think everybody knows you need to have a competitive tax rate. And we obviously have seen tax reform here in the US and, you know, which has made your tax rate more competitive. Is that a good thing? How do you see that? Do you say when this news was coming down late last year and you knew President Trump and his team were on a mission um, to make the United States more competitive? 
uh, globally in terms of attracting attracting our own foreign direct investment. Did you say, oh, no, here we go. It's going to get even more competitive. Do you feel pressure? Does Ireland feel pressure to even lower uh, its corporate tax rate? So, so firstly, we have no difficulty with the U.S. tax reform. Uh, we think it's a good thing. It's a good thing for business. Uh, your businesses are also our businesses, so we want them to do well. And yeah. uh, uh, historically, when U.S. has done well, so, uh, so has Ireland. Uh, no, we don't feel pressure to lower our corporate tax rate. Actually, uh, if anything, we believe that uh, having a stable rate, uh, and Ireland has had 12.5% for decades, is, is hugely important. So it doesn't go up, it doesn't go down. The consistency is what investors buy into, even more so than the rate. Well, Martin, are you seeing any change at all in terms of uh, U.S. factories? I mean, you guys have been, Ireland has been a mecca for U.S. companies. Um, we've certainly done a lot of stories about who's over there. I mean, I could I could do the list. Pfizer, Boston Scientific, J&J all have substantial Irish operations. Um, you also, I think Dublin's, what do they call it, Silicon Docks neighborhood. Docks, yes, yeah. Facebook, Google, Twitter, and other U.S. tech companies have set up uh, offices close to their, um, cl- you know, there. So... Any slowdown, any changes in companies who might have been talking to you a year ago, U.S. companies in particular, and who said, you know, we're going to wait and see? No, I think first thing, I think the investment that's there is is thriving. Much of it has been there for decades. And uh, and I, I should say, you know, having that investment there is good for the U.S. companies and good for the parents, uh, you know, uh, of those companies as well. It makes them stronger because it's providing them access to the European market. And companies will always want to internationalize. They want to get into the market. They want to be in the European market. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they also want to access talent and they want to access innovation and there's no one country or continent that has a monopoly on that. I think uh, you know, undoubtedly the US will be more competitive going forward so there may be some marginal calls where companies will decide to stay in the US maybe rather than internationalise but in some cases they will have to internationalise. They will have to have a footprint and a presence uh, in other markets and in Europe and if they're going to do that obviously we want them to do it in Ireland. And I should also say it's, it's a two-way relationship. There are over 500 Irish companies with a, a, a physical presence and employment here on the ground in the US, employing over 100,000 people across 50 states. So, you know, trade and investment, good for both of us. I mean, a good lesson here is globalization. That train has left the station. It's hard to unwind that. Uh, absolutely. And I think, you know, if we look at it from Ireland's perspective, you know, we opened up to the world in the 1950s. Uh, we are one of the most globalized economies in the world. And it, it has worked for Ireland. It has made Ireland, uh, you know, a, a much better place than it was when it was insular and inward looking. But let me go back to the question. Nobody has changed their plans. Uh, Nobody has said, you know, we're going to think about it. We're not going to up our maybe spending plans or we're not going to come. Nobody. No, I, I think... I, I never know what the, the opportunity cost of it is because maybe somebody hasn't come and spoken to us. Maybe they've just made a decision. But anybody who was speaking yeah. to you about doing no, something? They, they've continued with their plans. And, uh, and but, but what we've also seen, I think, is investment increase in both places because I, I, you know we can see some companies who have announced much increased investments in the US as well as increased investment uh, overseas. And that's obviously a function of performing economies right across the globe at the you, moment. You mentioned the importance of being able to set up somewhere in Europe so that you have kind of a gateway to the European markets. Um, Brexit, is that going to be impacting you guys and what's going on in terms of uh, foreign direct investment? Just got about a minute left. So um, in terms of Brexit overall, it's negative for Ireland. It's negative politically. It has a huge impact on the indigenous economy and particularly agri-food. Uh, but then as we look at foreign direct investment, we see uh, more investment into Ireland. We see more interest because many of the companies Companies who are based in the UK, who access a European market, particularly financial services, but also pharma and also tech. 
they're they're not looking to Ireland. Some of them are moving to Ireland. Yeah. And then I think, uh, you know, the UK was a destination for much of the FDI coming into Europe. And they are now, go- you know, because there was no certainty about the future trade deal between the UK and the EU, Ireland has become very attractive. Okay, so the million dollar, billion dollar question is, you're going to be having corned beef and um, <laughs> and Guinness tomorrow? I might have one of those anyway, who knows? <laughs> um, good stuff. And you feel like the global economy, we talk about the synchronized global economy, it's humming along, 20 seconds? It's, it's, it's certainly. It, it's I don't want to be, you know, an out there bullish, crazy woman, but are, is that what you're seeing? It's certainly what we're hearing from our companies. You know, I, I was in Davos in January and uh, the mood was extremely positive and I think everybody believes it's going to be a good year. All right, well, enjoy your stout. Thank you very much. (laughs) Good to be here. Martin Shanahan, or a hamburger, if you're still going to be in New York, something like that. Martin Shanahan, he is the chief executive officer of IDA Ireland. They're the government agency responsible for attracting foreign direct investment into Ireland, based in Dublin, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Carol Masser, this is Bloomberg Markets, and this is Bloomberg Radio. Yeah, we all got a lot of work to do. That includes big time your human relations offices. And more and more human relations tasks and offices are being streamlined thanks to technology that, like technology taking over everything. Isaac Oates is CEO at JustWorks, an HR tech platform, uh, joining us on the phone in New York City. Isaac, nice to have you here with us. Tell us exactly what you guys are doing at JustWorks. Yeah, Carol, thanks for having me. So uh, JustWorks is a solution for small business owners. It helps them... Uh, pay their employees, uh, offer them great benefits, and helps those businesses stay compliant, so they can focus on, or they can stay focused on what they're doing instead of working about worrying about HR. So, what do you mean, offer them great benefits? You mean it basically just puts everything, kind of organizes it in a tech platform? Yeah, well, actually, it's more than that. What we do is, uh, you know, we work with thousands of small businesses, and we are able to take all of their employees and put them in one big pool. So, think sort of a group buying. Mm-hmm. group buying arrangement. Right. And then we can go out to insurance carriers, uh, 401k providers, and a bunch of other benefits providers that these businesses are going to. We can basically do kind of a group buying thing. So we can save the money on the benefits, and we can also help them manage it, uh, which is much more difficult if you're doing it by yourself. So who's your typical customer, uh, Isaac? Yeah. So, you know, our uh, our customers, they do all kinds of things. They tend to have, uh, on average, let's say, about a dozen employees. Uh, but, you know, they really uh, run the gamut. So I would say what they all have in common is they're, they're small, usually under 100 employees, and uh, they care a lot about making sure that their teams have access to good benefits and that they're doing things right. So how's your business going? Tell me, give me an idea of the growth that you're seeing, top and bottom line. I know you guys just uh, did a recent Series D funding, I think $40 million from a bunch of investors. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we raised $40 million from uh, Firstmark as well, as well as all of our existing investors. Um, the business has been doing great. Uh, we uh, grew the top line by more than 100% over the past 12 months. Uh, so, you know, we're seeing a huge amount of demand in the market for uh, a newer tech-based solution. Well, that's interesting. And uh, I'm assuming you guys aren't profitable yet. Um, we... Uh, I guess we don't talk exactly about profitability. Every customer we add uh, yeah. helps, but we're making huge investments in uh, both our technology and uh, our go-to-market team. And so, you know, we're really making sure that we're uh, investing in, in capturing that opportunity. So I got to ask you, because you've worked um, with or under uh, Jeff Bezos of Amazon, right? And so one of the big headlines, certainly over the last month or so, and certainly of 2018 so far, was 
the talk uh, or the release of J.P. Morgan and Amazon, Jeff Bezos, Jamie Dimon, and Warren Buffett working together to kind of come up with a better solution in terms of health care for their own employees. You know, you guys are doing human relations. I'm just curious, you know, how this maybe fits into some of what you guys are doing and what you think of that combination and what might come out of it. Yeah, so I spent a long time working at Amazon. Uh, I have, you know, immense respect for for Jeff and for that company. Uh, you know, I would say first and foremost, um, you know, I think healthcare in the United States, um, I think it's working. I think it could be a lot better. Uh, I think, you know, more access for more people would be really beneficial. I also think that um, systems that are more integrated would be really beneficial. I think it is, you know, it's really terrible when every time you go to the doctor or the ER or whatever, and you're filling out the same old form about the most basic things, you know, there's not even a single record. So I think there's a lot of work to be done in the healthcare space generally uh, in terms of whether uh, Amazon and uh, those other two companies can take it on. Uh, TBD, you know, I mean, they try a lot of things and some work out great and some don't. So we'll see. Well, it's interesting, too, and you guys were founded back in uh, late 2012. What's changed since you started your mission at JustWorks? Yeah, so I think in some ways we were a little bit uh, ahead of our time when we started. Uh, I mean, the biggest thing that we were focused on was saying, you know, hey, there are there's probably a 1,000 providers in our space, you know, of various sizes. And uh, at the time, when we started talking with people, they said, you know what, all that matters is that, you know, you have an effective sales team, you have a product that gets the job done. Uh, that's, that's all that's going to matter. And, you know, the, the route that we've taken is we've said, hey, let's make sure that we have a product that people really like, a brand that people really love, uh, you know, really high level of, of service. And, you know, we think people uh, will pay more for that. They'll value it. Uh, they'll choose us over a competitor because we're better at those things. And, uh, you know, we've definitely turned out to be right about it, and I think that's a big part of our success. But I also think that, in general, people look at these industries where, um, you know, solution was sort of painful but adequate. Mm -hmm. And I think people are coming back around and saying, uh, you know what, we need to be, we actually need to be really great. And I think a big part of it is, you know, is because you have millennials in particular who have grown up, uh, they have very high expectations for uh, the kinds of technology that they use in their daily right. life. And I think they're starting to run into this old stuff and saying, man, I don't, I don't like this at all. Yeah, and I agree with you about the terms of streamlining. Certainly when it comes to the healthcare care uh, era, there's a lot to be done. Isaac Oates, thank you. Nice to have you here. Chief Executive Officer at JustWorks, uh, joining us on the phone in New York City. There's more about the company at JustWorkHR. You can also go to JustWorks.com. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk the music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody, it is time for the drive to the close. Michael Sheldon is executive director, chief investment officer at RDM Financial Group, based in Westport, Connecticut, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York. It's been a while. Nice to have you back with us. Thank you very much. You, I was looking at some of the notes you sent over, and you believe we are in the mid to um, latter innings of the current economic cycle. So what inning? 
So, and are we a, going into extra innings? <laughs> well, that certainly could be the case. Uh, I'd say, you know, to use a baseball analogy, we're probably in the sixth or seventh inning, something like that. Right. Um, we just celebrated the ninth year of the current expansion. So, by all means, we're towards historically, we would be towards the latter innings. But, you know, if you look at the economic data right now, if you look at the fact that the Fed's, the real Fed funds rate remains negative, the Fed's just really started raising rates, even though they've they've raised them five times. Overall, the economy seems to be on pretty solid footing. We don't see a recession ahead. So uh, we think when all is said and done, this very well could be the longest expansion in the post-World War II period. Now, listen, innings can go on for a long time. We can get three batters up, three batters down. So is it going to be longer innings? Well, we think there's a good chance of that. We have to make it, I believe, through August of next year for it to eclipse the economic expansion of the 1990s. So the Fed, the biggest thing that sort of ends expansions and causes a recession is when the Fed raises rates too quickly. Uh, (laughs) No pressure, Jay Powell, just saying. That's right. There used to be an old saying, three steps in a stumble. When the Fed raises rates three times, the the markets start to uh, run into trouble. So the Fed's raised rates five times so far, each by a quarter point, but we're starting from very low levels right now. Yeah. So I think there's some signs you can look at in the period ahead. You can look at profit margins, earnings revisions, weekly jobless claims, credit spreads, some of these indicators will sort of point to the fact the economy may be um, heading for for trouble or that rain clouds may be coming. So uh, we don't see those at this point. So we think uh, the economy still is on reasonably good footing. So what data points would start? What what would what would what data points have to kind of start crumbling for you to start? maybe changing your perspective here? Well, there there are coincident indicators, which basically rise and fall with the economy, and there are leading indicators. So there are a number of leading indicators, for example, weekly jobless claims, which come out each Thursday. Uh, Those are at uh, multi-decade lows. Earnings revisions for the S&P 500. Now, those are going to come down somewhat, but they um, are still pretty high right now. But you do understand, because we did a story, um, I, I don't know, I was reading something that said, we look at the earnings and everybody's upbeat, but people were very upbeat about earnings going into the financial crisis. I think they were very upbeat about earnings going into the tech you know, fall off. So earnings... People can get wrong. <laughs> You're absolutely right. So you have to look at a you have to look at a number of different indicators and try and get an yeah. average and a sense for how they're trending. They're not all going to turn at once. Um, we want to also look at credit spreads, for example, the spread between high yield bonds and investment and, and treasuries. Uh, typically, that peaks before the market. You can also look at, for example, the number of stocks above their 200-day moving average. That typically is peaked several months or several quarters ahead of the market. I'll throw you one other, which is the the conference board's leading economic index. So that's at an all-time high right now, and that has 10 subcomponents, but that typically peaks two to three quarters ahead of the economy. All right, and we're and you don't see that yet. None of these indicators are flashing flashing red right now. I think the worries we have are that. But are we being too complacent? I guess is what I'm also worried about. Well, that that leads me to a sort of a discussion of the markets over the short term. And the markets peaked. I think it was on January 26th, and you know that was really the result of we haven't had a three or a five percent correction in some time. Right. Uh, sentiment levels have been rising, valuation levels are above trend, and you have central banks who are slowly glacially heading for the exit. So we had this 10% 10 correction. And the surprise wasn't that we had a correction. It's really how quickly it happened over a course of just nine days. So I mean, I was looking at the NASDAQ, and I think it's now up about 8% on the year, but it was up 10% again. I mean, S&P and Dow, not as much of a bounce back, but nonetheless, it's they're up on the year. Yeah, we still like technology. It was one of our overweights in 2017. Um, The valuation levels are positive. They're returning more capital. 
uh, they repatriate any money from overseas. Profit margins on a lot of these new tech companies are much higher than they were for old tech companies. But there is one thing just to sort of keep in the back of your mind that tech weighting in the S&P 500 is now 25%. Back in 2000, when we had the peak in technology, it was around 34%, something like that. So mm. it is something to sort of keep in mind. Uh, as long as earnings for tech continue to rise, I think we're okay. But but that is something for investors to just keep an eye on. Do you, though, look at the market? Like, we did have that 10% correction, but do you do do you look at the economic cycle and say, yep, we're, I mean, things are cycles. They go up, they go down. We will have a recession at some point, but it might be an easy recession, correct? Yeah, that's absolutely true. We haven't uh, done away with the economic with the economic cycle. There will be another recession again at some point. But one of the interesting things is we haven't created the kind of imbalances and in the easy, economy this can, time. I can say easy recession if I don't lose my job, but if somebody else loses their job, it's a hard recession. I want to be you know, fair about that. No, true. An economic recession typically is associated with a bear market, which is a decline of 20%. So being able to forecast the economy ahead you know, will give us a heads up on the direction of the market. But So there will be a recession at some point in the future. Um, one of the things we look at is the imbalances in the economy. We don't see the major imbalances that we saw, for example, heading into the last recession or in 2000. So if there is a recession, say there's something that happens that we can't see right now in 2019, we don't think it'll be quite as severe as, as the past couple of downturns. Are you at all nervous about some kind of trade war going on? Well, that's definitely a, a wild card right now, and that's something that we didn't really anticipate heading into 2018. I think if there's a, a wider trade war, I think that's definitely a negative uh, tariffs or tax on consumers, and it's not good for trade on a global basis. But or nobody the US. wins in a trade war. That's correct, and it could certainly lead to a risk-off environment. So that's something we are we are wary of, but we are watching. When we end the year, I mean, have you put any forca forecasts out for for the equity averages, the S&P 500? I'm just taking a look at where we are right now. Uh, we're up on ba, 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 about 3% on the year, 27.57. Well, we certainly, um, you know, after the market peaked in January, we've entered a sort of a choppy market environment. We're also heading into midterm elections, which typically in the past, that's created a choppy environment through, through the early fall. Uh, we think when all is said and done that the markets will be higher at year end, and that's as a result of rising corporate profits, tax reform, tax legislation, and the fact that uh, the alternatives for fixed income are also not that favorable as well. And then we'll see what 2019 will bring us. That's right. <laughs> we'll start all over again. Um, nice to get some time with you. Have a great weekend. Thank you very much. Michael Sheldon, Executive Director, Chief Investment Officer at RDM Financial Group, based in Westport, Connecticut, in our New York studio. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.